0: Well, good morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, We'll be finishing the first chapter here. Uh, We'll be looking at just four verses, verses 27 through 30. And uh, before we get into it, I just, uh, by show of hands, um, how many here enjoy suffering? How many people uh, like to endure persecution? I I don't see too many of you. How many would even consider it a privilege to suffer. I see, I see, I see, I see, I see two or three hands. Um, I did some research this week and I looked at um, the percentage of people based on polls who would actually enjoy suffering um, and uh, shockingly there wasn't many at all. Most people, <laughs> they said that they enjoyed uh, their comfort zone. They preferred uh, living life pretty standard uh, without much trials, hardships, any sort. Even people uh, who claim to be Christians, still uh, said in these polls that if they had their right choice, they would rather not be mocked for their faith. They would rather not be um, taunted by unbelievers. They don't want to deal with um, people making fun of them. They don't want to deal with losing friends over their beliefs. Um, almost every single person said that they would not want to undergo going to prison for their faith, and even less. I think there was like two percent so that they would even die for their faith. People do not like to suffer. People don't like being persecuted. And, this, and it seems very clear from the, uh, the polls I was looking at that people don't consider it a privilege to suffer. But I want to tell you this morning that it is an absolute privilege to be considered worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. It's an absolute privilege to endure any hardship that comes along with sharing and expressing our faith in Him. And uh, if I were to give this... Uh, Sermon—a title. I would say it's the privilege of suffering for Christ. If I were to ask you, who do you think is the most persecuted religious group in the world? Who would you say? It's Christians, and by a long, a long margin, actually, uh, Christians are the most persecuted group. And I'll just give you some statistics, uh, just sharing uh, what what Christians endure. It says that. According to U- Open Door USA, it's estimated that nearly 345 Christians are killed every month for their faith. It's a little bit over three, a uh, little over, over 11 Christians being beheaded, stoned, hung, shot in the chest or in the head, mutilated, or and drowned. Uh, all different forms of torture to lead to death every single day. A little over 11 Christians dying every day for their faith. And this picture, I don't know if you guys remember this one. this was actually not too long ago, it was just 2015. 21 <clears throat> Christians taken uh, by ISIS for their faith in the Lord and ultimately were all beheaded because they did not give up their faith. Uh, they did not recant uh, believing in Jesus Christ and they suffered for it. they were persecuted. I remember watching this actually. there are some videos you can watch of it uh, on it and it, it breaks your heart you're I remember crying watching this video of just how merciless they were uh, to these Christians. How wicked they were to people who follow after Christ. Some more uh, statistics I found was that 772 uh, Christians are, are, uh, endure violence, beating, kidnapping, rape. And, and, and that happens every single month. 772 people are in some way violently abused. 2,625 Christians are detained without trial, without appearing in court, unlawfully arrested and sentenced to imprisonment every single year. 1,266 churches are attacked, burned down, or completely destroyed every single year. Uh, there's uh, just a map that I have. of There's 50, I don't know, you can't really see it on this map super well, but the highlighted areas are 53 countries that in some form, if you share the gospel, it will lead to severe persecution of some form, whether it be a fine, whether it be imprisonment of some sort, or whether it be ultimately death. Some of these uh, countries will not surprise you. Some of them may. Uh, you know, you have actually the number one country of all. It's North Korea, uh, most violent place for a Christian to be. Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Iran. And the list goes on. Fifty-three countries that don't want anything to do with the Word of God that would rather have it elsewhere. And uh, it's, it's awful if you look at more. I mean, I could go on for days about statistics about what Christians endure. But that just shows you how hated uh, Christians are. But why are Christians suffering? What, what are they suffering for? They're suffering for the gospel's sake. And really, that the idea of persecution really ties into the passage that we're talking about today. Uh, you know, as we as we've been going through this first chapter, we've been reading about Paul writing this letter, encouraging the Philippian believers, while he's in the very midst of suffering himself. He's been imprisoned in you know by the, he's been imprisoned before, and now he's under house arrest, uh, awaiting his appearance before Caesar. And no doubt, in the mind of the Philippian believers. They must have been thinking, you know what, he's back again, he's back again, (laughs) arrested, and now, you know, it's just a discouraging thing to hear, but Paul actually tells him this encouraging words in verse 12 that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Not only was he in prison, but he was expanding the gospel to other people because of his situation, because of his circumstances. And, uh, Paul then goes on to say, uh, and you see kind of that he's torn between two ideas. Is it better for me to remain here uh, and to live and that Christ may be preached? Or is it better for me to die and be with the Lord forever? He's torn because he knows that he wants to see the Philippian believers again and wants to encourage them. But he also knows that if he dies, it's far better because he can be forever with the Lord in, in, in heaven. But it seems that Paul is confident that he will return. He's confident that he will see the Philippian believers again. And so he rejoices um, for the fact that he will one day return to them. But while they wait for his return, Paul gives them these words. And this is where we'll pick up today uh, in our passage. We read these verses, verse 27 through 30. It says, "...only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs." that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So, I think before we jump into the passage, we should really answer some questions surrounding persecution. And uh, I think one of the the questions that comes to mind is, if we're being persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ, why why does the world hate Jesus so much? Why are they so opposed to him? And I think the answer is found in uh, John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. It says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus was the light that it's speaking about in that verse. He was the light that came into this dark world. He was free of sin, perfect in every way, and came for that sole purpose of dying on the cross for each and every one of our sins. And you would think naturally, wow, the, the world should love him. He came to save them. He gave off them eternal life. Well, how could they possibly hate him? The reason the world hates him is because they love their sin. They love darkness. And they would rather hold on to that than accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I, I took a trip with Sharon five years ago to Disney World, and we didn't even really, like, we wanted to go on the basic budget. We wanted to be as cheap as possible to enjoy our time there. And we paid $50 a night, I think it was, for a hotel room. And... Uh, it wasn't great, but it was cheap, it was far better. Um, and everything was going well until about the third or fourth night, we turned the lights on, and out in the corner, there's a little cockroach that goes runs into the, the bathroom. And this thing was huge. Like I have never seen a cockroach before, but um, this thing was massive. And, and what I realized, as gross as the story is, what I realized was that the cockroach hates the light. It avoids it, it doesn't want to be near it. <clears throat> so it squirms into the darkness, where it can be hidden. And in the same way, the world loves darkness. It loves hiding. And so it flees from the Lord. It's so interesting. Uh, They don't want to be exposed. The Lord has come and he's shown his perfection, his holiness, and it exposes them just like the light exposes the cockroach. It exposes the world that they're sinners, that they need a savior. By sheer just contrast of who Jesus is and who they are, it reveals to them how truly sinful they are. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we're, we're said that we are the light of the world. We are to go into the world and let our light shine before men, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We are the ones who are to live lives following as an example, uh, following our example, Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we will also be hated, hated because we live lives of holiness that goes against the world. And being a Christian, if you haven't realized yet, it's not a popular choice. You will be hated. And how do I know this? It's because John 15 tells us that. It says, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before you. Um, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they will keep yours also. The Lord came. He was persecuted by the very people he came to save. The very ones he was dying for on the cross were the ones who were mocking him, who were accusing him of things. And if Jesus Christ, our master, the one above us, suffered, how can we as servants expect anything less than to also suffer for him? You know, and there's a lot of hurdles I think people have in their mind when they read uh, passages about suffering. I I remember um, hearing some people even read verses that uh, say things like, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, let's go talk to the next happy uh, verse. Let's go to the more encouraging sections. Let's just pass over the persecution. You know, let's, let's tell all about the good things only. But the people are essentially afraid to talk about persecution. They don't want to endure it. They don't want to hear about it because it's uncomfortable to them. Um, They think, well, you know, what if the world makes fun of me? What if they think I'm some, you know, super Christian or some person who's just off his rocker? What if they think that, you know, what if my coworkers don't want to hang out with me more because I just talk about Jesus all the time? Or what if my boss doesn't like me talking about it at work? I don't want to make things weird there and My family is not Christian. I don't want to make family reunions awkward. I I don't... Just What if, what if? What if it costs me financially? What if I lose my job? You know, what if, what if? There's a lot of what ifs. But I'll ask you a question. What if you decide to not tell a believer about Jesus Christ and this very night he dies and he spends eternity separated from the Lord Jesus forever? What if you had that opportunity to share with him and you chose not to because you were too scared and now they have no hope for eternity? What if then... Honestly, what's the worst thing that the world can even do to you? They could take your life and you would forever be with the Lord in heaven. And that's far better. (laughs) There's nothing that could even compare to that. Even when you think that's the worst situation, it's actually a better situation because you'll be with Him. And we have that hope. We can say, as Paul did, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the reality as believers. We have that hope. We uh, we also read again. I had referenced this earlier. This this passage speaking about suffering, and the promise that it will come. Second Timothy says, uh, "Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution." The world it doesn't support. Uh, it doesn't support us. It's not a popular message that we share. It's really, uh, and it's not a politically correct message. It's not something that makes people necessarily feel good about themselves. It's not what they want to hear. Our message, very simply broken down, is that you are sinners. Through and through, there's nothing you can do that's good. Even your good deeds are but filthy rags. You are incapable of saving yourselves. There's no good deeds you can even do. That hurts people. Their pride. They don't want to hear about that they can't do anything to get them. They want to give their 10%. They want to be able to do something. But when they hear that they can't do anything, it hurts them. It hurts their pride. But we also know that this, the message goes on beyond that we're just sinners. We also realize that Jesus Christ made a way. He came to this world as a perfect per, perfect uh, God in the flesh came and, and died for our sins on that cross so that we could have hope, so that we could go to heaven forever and be with Him. And all we have to do is simply put our faith in Him and trust Him as our Savior. But to the world, they look at that and they say, that's so naive, that's such a simple thing, it can't be just that. It's, it's, it's foolishness. It's, it's just, it's offensive to me that I would have to leave behind my sin, that i have to leave behind my pride and surrender to this God. They don't like that. It, it hurts their pride. And they don't want to do that. And so we suffer persecution because this world hates that message. And I think there's two types of Christians in this world. I think there's the first type, which is probably the less common type, Christians who are bold for the Lord, who go out and don't care what type of persecution or suffering they endure, and they will go out and preach the gospel no matter what happens. And they're faithful, unapologetic, and they are just on fire for the Lord, saying the truth, no matter what the circumstances are that reflect after they say it. And then I think there's a second type, a second type who may never, ever in their lifetime suffer persecution because they simply decide to not share and speak for the Lord. They simply say, I want to live a comfortable life. I don't want to go and offend people. I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to water down the gospel. I'm going to keep in my own lane. I don't want to offend somebody. And so they decide out of fear that they are going to live a life free of persecution, free of upsetting anybody, free of ruffling any feathers. I mean, it just... When I show you those, uh, those 53 countries, considering the persecution they have to endure, think about it. They have to smuggle Bibles into the country. They have to meet underground to have studies, and they're not sure even in those studies if there's a spy who's going to rat them out and then have them imprisoned or beaten or even killed. They worry uh, daily about their own lives. And yet here we are in America with very little of any of that. And yet we still are more scared of that of that social awkwardness, of that offensiveness that might happen, rather than realizing the the power of what our message is. We, uh, We have one less thing to worry about than they do, and yet we are less bold than they are there. It's incredible. Don't fear what men have to say about you. Don't fear the scoffing. Don't fear the mockery. Don't fear losing friends. Don't fear losing your job. Don't fear losing even family members that are close to you. It doesn't matter. In the end, even if you lost your own life, it would be gain to suffer for Christ. And the Lord says that if we take a stand, if we stand up for the truth and we're bold, then we'll be rewarded for it. And I know this because it tells us this very thing in Matthew 5. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. The Lord, He calls us blessed when we endure persecution. When we suffer for godly living, we are blessed people. When the world sees us living these godly lives, when we are living lives that are contrary to them. It exposes their sinful lives and it brings about hostility because they don't like seeing that. The world hates seeing Christians going on strong for the Lord. They hate seeing people who are unafraid of them, who are unapologetic for their stance with the Lord. They'd rather see a middle, uh, lukewarm Christian who likes to stay in their lane, who doesn't want to bring up sin, who would rather just love and be accepting of every type of person. They'd rather have that kind of person who will never talk about uh, their deep need for a savior. And notice in this passage that it doesn't say if they revile and persecute you, but when they revile and persecute you, meaning it's going to happen. It will happen. But even when it happens, remember that it is a privilege that we have as Christians to suffer for his sake. It's a privilege that we have to be persecuted it's a privilege to be mocked, to be scoffed, to be called names. And it really shouldn't bring us down. Instead, it should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to be exceedingly glad because we were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. It's a privilege. And so the question is, with this mindset of being ready to endure persecution, with this mindset of, of that we will endure this to come for Christ, How as a church are we supposed to conduct ourselves? And there's really four qualities that are defined in this chapter or in this section that tell us how we are as a church supposed to be ready to suffer for Christ. And the first quality is to behave according to our citizenship. Verse 27 speaks to this. It says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. <clears throat> and the word conduct uh, translated really is just the word that means to live as a citizen. As Christians, we are not citizens of Fremont, California. We're not citizens of California itself. We're not citizens of the U.S. We're not even citizens of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're citizens of heaven. And as Christians, we are supposed to conduct ourselves according to our position as citizens. Christians should be Christ-like. Oftentimes, I, uh, <clears throat> on the road, I'll be driving, and I'll see uh, about, I don't know, six or seven cars pass me up, and they'll be going 80, 90 miles an hour, and they're all kind of together as a cluster. And then about a quarter mile ahead of me, they all put on their, you know, no hazards in the road, but they all slow down. And you'll see, that's really weird, you know, why are they slowing down? But sure enough, when you get to the point where they were at, you realize that there was a police officer there with a radar gun. And so they slowed down because, you know, they didn't want to be uh, caught speeding. And you really realize that after they passed that traffic stop, they quickly speed back up to where they were going again. They continue at 80, 90 miles an hour. And you realize just the inconsistency with their driving. Drivers should really behave, whether who's on the road, consistently. It should be uh, you know 65 miles an hour regardless of who's on the road um, but that doesn't happen in the same way where drivers should be consistently driving no matter who's watching as believers we should be continually living lives worthy of the gospel no matter who's there you think of uh Paul here is really just saying to them I'm gonna keep you accountable whether I am there in the flesh or whether I hear reports about you, it should be the same thing, that you are living lives worthy of the gospel. It should be obvious to everyone around us that we are living lives according to our citizenship, which is in heaven. Um, And you know, it's not just the believers who are watching you, it's not just God who's watching you, it's actually the entire world that's watching you. You think of um, what the unbelievers even know, most of them don't own a Bible, most of them don't read the Bible, but what they know about the Lord is from you. They watch you intently. And they say, is that person, he says a lot about the Lord, but is his life reflective of that? Is he actually following through with what he says he believes? He tells me this is in the Bible, but his life doesn't reflect it. And they look at you, and they put you to actually do a higher standard than themselves. The things that they're okay with doing, they would say, oh, why are you doing that? And it's, and it's the world watching you, seeing is your testimony consistent They should really see, as believers, they should see that we have an absolute strong and obvious love for the Lord and for other believers. They should see that Christ is at the center of all that we do. And they should see that we are keeping a good testimony before them. And so I have to ask myself and everyone else here, are we living as if the world is watching us? Are we living lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So in order to be prepared to suffer... We have to live according to our citizenship. The second quality that the uh, that Paul says here is that the church must stand fast. We have to stand fast. The idea is we're uh, persevering and holding still to our stance no matter what the opposition is, no matter how outnumbered we are. I think of a, a story that's very familiar to all of you about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three friends of Daniel, friends who were... Uh, <clears throat> living at the time when Nebuchadnezzar was king he erected this golden golden image and commanded that every single person in the entire nation must bow down to this golden image and this golden image you know was huge 60 cubits high and every it says every person at the time bow down except the three friends of Daniel and so the king hears about this and says hey, bring them to me let me hear let me hear about them and then talk to them and so we pick up real quickly in, in Daniel 3.14. It says, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if, not, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the fu- burning fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I mean, wow, could you imagine the situation? Being placed in a situation where you've disobeyed the king already for the first time. He's now talked to you personally and said, If you do not, this is your final chance to, to take back what you've done. Bow down or be cast forever into the lake or into uh, the fiery furnace. It's death. It's stand firm for what you believe, or die. That's the only two options. I mean, that would be a pretty, it's a pretty challenging situation. I don't, what would you do in that situation? Are you, would you say, you know what? We've gone too far. I, I think the Lord would understand. Or do you say, no, the Lord is the only God and we will only serve him. Well, look at what they said. They said back to the king. I mean, remember, this is the king of the nation. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? <clears throat> if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we serve the gold image which you have set up. Can you imagine saying that? Talk about standing firm for the truth. I mean, that is a tough situation, life or death. Which will you stand for? And they decided to stand firm against the king who told them to bow down and worship another god. And as we know, the Lord honored their stance. And even though Nebuchadnezzar said to turn up the furnace seven times hotter than normal, so much to the point that the people bringing them up to that furnace were dying from the heat. And yet, not a single one of their hairs were burned. Not even a single... Uh, one of their garments singed. They didn't even have the smell of fire on them. That's how much the Lord protected them, even in that midst of that persecution that they endured. Only the chains, yeah. Showing them that ultimately he was the true God. Just think about it, The same way that Daniel and his three friends, the only, the outliers of the entire nation, stood up against Not just the king himself. This is every single person. From peasants to high rulers were bowing down. Yet They were the three who said we will not. Talk about standing up against the odds. Against people who disagree with you. And again, our message of the gospel is not a popular message. It's not something that people like to hear. There's a lot of opposition against it. And yet it's the truth that they need to hear. Regardless of the outcome for us, whether it be persecution socially from losing friends, family, or physically like Daniel and his friends were up against. We have to be ready to defend, ready to stand up and persevere even when we're outnumbered. The third quality that the church should have is being united among the fellow believers. Verse 27 uh, says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. What's better than having a single believer stand up for their faith is having a group of believers standing firm with the gospel, having the whole body of Christ firmly with one mind, with one spirit striving together. And that's what Paul's calling for here. He's calling for unity amongst the Philippian believers. I don't know if you're familiar with your own body uh, but it has 11 body systems that work cohesively together to function, to keep you healthy every single day. Uh, I'm not gonna have time to go through all 11, it's just too much, but I wanna just give you a picture of how your body works together to keep you here, and you probably don't even know what's happening. You have your your respiratory system that brings oxygen into your body, excretes the CO2. You have your circulatory system that then takes that oxygen and pumps it throughout the rest of your body to give your tissues perfusion. You have your, uh, your musculatory system that allows you to flex your muscles and allows you to move around and do the, the activities you need to do for daily living. You have your, your integumentary system, your skin, that protects you as a barrier against all forms of attacks from you know, the outside, from pathogens, from any types of viruses, bacteria, whatever it may be. It also is conveniently helping you cool down and heat up when it needs to. And if that wasn't enough, God also gave you an immune system that when you do have a virus that enters, it attacks it, it fights against that, uh, that harmful bacteria and helps get you healthy again. And these are just three ways, or just five systems, sorry, in which the body works together cohesively. There's 11 of them all together, working together in unity. None of them have the same role. None of them have a specific set uh, thing that necessarily... Uh, is is in, in any way similar to each other, but they work together as one unit. They work together to fight off anything. Despite any circumstances that they deal with, they're ready to attack it. They're ready to go forward together in unity. Whether it's a broken bone, whether it's a cut, whether it's dehydration, whether it's an infection, whether it's a lack of blood flow, whether it's anything else, the body is ready to work together in unity. And that's your physical body. And in a similar sense, the body of believers must be united together. They have to be ready to endure persecution, ready to endure suffering together as one body. And just like the body is ready, our physical bodies are ready to endure any type of enemy that attacks it, we have to be ready for the enemy when he comes. We have Satan constantly trying to bring division among believers. His goal is that if you would take back your faith, if you would not stand up for faith, for the Lord, that would be the most ideal situation for him. He wants people to be quiet. Christians that are silent and off to the side are the best Christians for him. He loves it. But if he can't have it, he would rather, if, if Christians are still bold, he would rather them be disunified, to not stand up together. He would rather try and break them up, if, if at all possible. And you know, that even happens sometimes in our physical body. Something called lupus, it's an autoimmune disease where the body physically attacks itself it becomes disunified and it begins hurting itself to the point where if there's no treatment done the the body will die it will basically become so disunified that it can't support life anymore and that's really that's what satan would love to happen he would love to bring division he would love to attack the body and have it brother in christ versus sister in christ fighting one another so that they don't have unity that's his goal that's what he wants But Paul reminds us again to stand fast. One spirit with one mind against the enemy, against any attacks, against any persecution or suffering. And for what purpose? He says the purpose is striving together for the faith of the gospel. Our unity should expand our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and should expand also our boldness to share it with other people who are not yet saved So, we must be united together as believers. United together as one body. And the final thing that we have to do is to not fear the opposition. It tells us in verse 28, And not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. And um, as believers, we have a lot of adversaries. We have, uh, I mean if you don't believe it, just go down to the park and start preaching to the, start preaching the gospel, start picking up conversations with people. You'll see that there's a lot of opposition to what you have to say. It's not a widely accepted um, message that we have. But fear, I think, is another way that Satan really tries to get a hold of us, really tries to keep us quiet. And um, it's really sad because, I mean, (laughs) think about, How good of the news we have. We have been saved. We were sinners destined to hell. We had no hope for eternity. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ gave us the hope for eternity by dying on the cross for our sins, paying for them in full. And we just have to trust him. How great of a news is that? There is no article you'll ever read on the news. There is no uh, story you'll ever hear. There is no uh, message you'll ever hear from any of your friends that's greater than the news that we have this is good news, guys. And we should be preaching this boldly to people. They, you know, they'll read every day on the news articles. And who cares? Those articles will be obsolete or unimportant in the next week or month, whatever it may be. But this is news that lasts, news that is good, that really counts for eternity. So who cares if you lose friends? Who cares if you lose even your own life? It really means nothing in the end. Don't let the fear of the world dictate what you say and don't say to them. The suffering and the persecution that you and I go through, it pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ went through on that cross for you and I. And if he is willing to die for me, and if he is willing to go through that kind of persecution and suffering, then I must be willing to go through any of that myself. And if we are his disciples, we will endure similar persecution but don't allow the fear to dictate what you say. There's a story in the life of Peter which uh, is probably one of the lowest points in his life. And it's, if you look at it, really, it's fear that held him back um, from being bold about Christ. He says initially, very strongly, in Luke 22, he said, Lord, I'm willing to go with you to both prison and death. Then he, the Lord, said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times that you know me. And we know the story well. Jesus is then arrested. He's then left in the courtyard areas where there's fires, and he's just standing there at the fire, and people say, I know you. You're you're one of them. You're you're a Galilean. You were following Jesus, weren't you? And he says, no, I don't know. I I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not that man. And three times he denies the Lord over and over again. And yet... We look at that and say, wow, a disciple of Christ, denying the Lord. He was so bold. What held him back? It's the fear that he had. Fear of what men would do to him. He just saw his master being taken away to be you know, persecuted, to ultimately die. He was afraid. He was fearful for his own life. What would happen to me next? And often I think we can be fearful as well, just like Peter was. Fearful of what happens if I say, if I proclaim the Lord, if I am bold for him, what's going to happen to me next? What will be the consequences of my actions? But we know that that's not the end of Peter. We know that um, the Lord wasn't done with him yet. We read accounts in Acts chapter 5 where Peter and the other apostles probably, uh, this is probably one of my favorite passages, uh, to read of how they took a stand for the Lord and how they were unafraid of any opposition that would even come their way uh, regardless of the results that came with it. And uh, we read in Acts 5 about through the power of the Holy Spirit they were raising up the sick. They were preaching the gospel boldly. They were he- casting out demons. And the high priest and Pharisees hear about this and it says they were filled with indignation, filled with anger at what they were doing. And so much so that they persecuted by putting them into prison. But the Lord said, nope, nope, we're not going to keep them in prison long. He brings an angel and opens the prison doors and tells them and commands them go back to the go back to the um, temple and preach again. And the guards are, you know, find them not there. They look around for them. Where have they gone? They find them again preaching in the temple. They bring them back to the high priest. And we pick up in Acts chapter 5 and it says, the high priest saying to them, did we not strictly command you to not teach, to the, teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But listen to what Peter says. But Peter and the other apostles answered, and again, this is the high priest they're talking to. We ought to obey God rather than men. Can you imagine saying that to a high priest? Totally unafraid of the consequences that would happen. But Peter and the other prophets say that we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. God himself has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses to this thing and also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What boldness to say those things before the high priest. No backing down, no recanting what he said. This man had the power already to throw him in prison. He had the power to to persecute him in any form, beat him up. But he also even had the the power to kill him. And that's exactly what we see next is they then plot to kill them. But there's another uh, Pharisee who then says, you know what, no, let's wait. Let's let's see if this is of God or if this is of man. And so they wait. They don't allow them to be killed even though they had plotted to. And we pick back up in verse 40 and it says that, and they agreed with him, that is, the Pharisee, and when they had called back the apostles and beaten them, so not only, first of all, were they in jail, they were then beaten for their faith. And they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Despite the unjust uh, actions that were just done to them, they were fearless. They stood up for their faith, even regardless of what happens. But what would you do in that situation? You know, you've just, you've been in jail now. uh, You were released. You've then been beaten. And then you're strictly told by one of the highest rulers in the time, stop what you're doing. Stop it right now, or this is going to be bad for you strictly warning them again. It sounds a lot like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego given the opportunity again to either stand up for their faith or to recant and be quiet. I know mean, a lot of people would probably say, you know what, we've, we've gotten too far. We're way over our heads. We are in trouble now with the law. We're, we've been told and warned sternly not to do this anymore. Let's, let's stop. Let's just, let's quietly preach the gospel. Let's quietly, you know, not, let's not be bold anymore. You'd feel like maybe we've overstepped our boundaries. Maybe we've just gone too far. But that's not how the disciples responded. <laughs> I love how they responded to this persecution. It says in verse 41 and 42, So they departed from the presence of the council, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. They, they weren't discouraged. They weren't beat down that, you know what? <sighs> See, you know, this, is, this is what happens when you're, you're too bold for the Lord. No, no. They looked at it as a blessing, a privilege to have suffered for him, a privilege to have be counted worthy to suffer for him. And look, <laughs> look what they do next. And did they stop preaching? It says, no, and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wow. Could you say that you would do that after, after enduring what they did? Satan, in this very moment, wanted to use persecution to thwart the plans to spread the gospel. He wanted to take away their options, to minimize the spread of the gospel, and yet, in doing that very thing, in trying to persecute them, trying to silence them, he ends up encouraging them so that they're even more bold to share the gospel, and the gospel continues expanding. It's great how the Lord works in that way. When you endure persecution, do you consider it a privilege? Do you consider it exciting to have suffered for his sake? Do you rejoice as the disciples did that you were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name? And the interesting thing about um, being fearless um, amongst this persecution is that it really reveals two things. It reveals to the world their proof of their perdition. It says, to them, a proof of perdition. It means, perdition really just means uh, damnation or destruction. And the fact that we are fearless, that when we preach the gospel, regardless of the persecution, that we have no fear of anything. It's proof to them that they have no, no opportunity to scare us. They have, uh, their, their ultimate destruction is certain. That the fact that we are so bold shows of how certain their destruction is. And when they try to use their best weapons of fear and intimidation and they fail to make us afraid, They have nothing else to to use against us. Because even if they kill us, we still are going to go to heaven and be with the Lord forever. So there's nothing they can do against us. It's proving that they have ultimately destruction awaiting for them. They have ultimately damnation coming for them. And being fearless also shows to us as believers salvation. It says, but to you of salvation. The fact that we have no fear against persecution. The fact that we are unafraid shows and is is a sign that we are saved. It's a sign that no matter what happens to this shell of the body, we are not scared because we know that we're eternally secure. We know that we've placed our faith in him and we can trust that we will one day see him. Which ultimately takes us to verse 29. It says in verse 29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. <clears throat> Did you know that when you got saved, it was a privilege that the Lord granted you to come to know Him. It, became, it was a privilege for you to believe in Him. And as believers in Him, we came to know Him. We get these excellent benefits of eternal life. But the Lord keeps us here on this earth for a purpose. The purpose is to share that good news. the purpose. To share what Christ has done in our lives to the unbelieving world that there may be more added to the kingdom of heaven and as a result we will also as part of that privilege suffer for his sake so it's a two part privilege it comes with the territory that as believers who are saved and who are sharing the gospel we will also suffer for his sake but it's not bad because we know that our sharing of the gospel excites others to come to know him it expands the kingdom of heaven and it magnifies our Lord and for that, it's worth it all. Paul goes on in verse 30 saying, Having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Paul, uh, as you read through all his um, accounts in the, the New Testament, he was not a stranger to persecution. He knew persecution very well. We've, we've read so far of how much he knew of what it meant to suffer for Christ. He was an example to the Philippian believers of how to suffer. We know already in this passage or in this, uh, this book that he has been imprisoned uh, prior to this, when he was in you know in Acts. We know that uh, he was then now under house arrest. Uh, we know, read later in other epistles that he was stoned multiple times. He was whipped, beaten with rods. He was robbed. He was stripped of all his basic necessities. This man knew how to suffer for Christ. He knew. That even if it cost him all these things, it was still worth it for him to endure that. And now, the same conflict at which the Philippian believers had seen in Paul, and they, had, and they had seen in him, they're now granted with that same privilege to engage in that same suffering for the sake of the Lord. So it's interesting, you know, it's now the one who was the example to them now sees them. Uh, with that same conflict, and it's encouraging. It's encouraging that they have that privilege to be granted, uh, to be granted to them, that they can be speaking boldly for Christ's sake. Let me just ask you. I asked you when I first uh, first started this message, but do you consider it a privilege to suffer? Do you consider it a privilege to to speak up for Christ's name? Are you willing to stand up boldly, no matter what the consequences are for Christ? you have been granted this amazing privilege to go out into the world and to boldly preach that Jesus Christ has died for you and I and he is offering eternal life to anyone who will believe. I pray that for myself and for all of us that we can be like the uh, believers of Peter and the apostles in Acts 5 whom even after being beaten, even after being persecuted, it says they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this awesome privilege that you've given us, Lord, to speak your name and to be persecuted for it, Lord. I pray that we would remember that it is such an awesome blessing to have that opportunity to stand boldly for you. Lord, I pray that we would not fear what the world has to say. I pray that we wouldn't look to this world and and wonder... Should we speak up or should we not? Lord, I pray that we would be unapologetic, fearless in our approach and sharing the gospel, Lord. I pray that we would be Christians united together, ready to endure that persecution. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would help us this week to be bold for you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.